Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. I spread about 16,000 tons of chicken manure each year. Keep it to yourself. (laughs) Oh, man. I'll tell you what. What am I going to do without DB? I don't maybe win and I'll have them complain about for the next four years. Uh, sorry, I was late. Uh, I was listening to Aaron Robert Rogers sobbing on the Joe Rogan show. Uh, I'll get back to that because I have a guest. Uh, do you kind of let the cat out of the bag? Well, uh, Vinny, I are really happy and proud of this get. Uh, one of the great football writers in America, D. In America, okay? Uh, we got him on the Ben Jarofsky show. He's from Sporting News. Guy's freaking brilliant. Uh, so we'll be talking a little. We'll talk a little Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay Packers, Chicago Bears. Reset 2020. Because huh. it's the uh, <laughs> Blue Dog, Alton, Illinois. Uh, because it's um, the start of the uh, football season. Awesome. I know. I know you're fired up over Cardinals. Isn't that your team? Well, Cardinals? Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, they were your team when they were in St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, Sort of. I always say I'm going to get into football, then it happens, and I'm like, ah, I don't, I'm done. I don't want to do this. I, I, and I'm I'm just the opposite. I'm all fired up every year. This is it, D. This is the year the Bears go to the Super Bowl. And then after like week three, I'm oh, beep. Get okay, the basketball thank season. Thank going. you. Th- thank you for cleaning that up. All right, your Ben Jarofsky show. For what day is it? My God. Oh, August 30th, Tuesday, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of reefer to smoke and eat, and all that stuff, and so much more, including columns from your very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, August 30th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's a legal eagle. (laughs) Attorney at law, Jim Coogan. And now your host, it's a bird, it's a plane. Nah, it's just Ben. (laughs) Chicago Raider columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Half a Council Tuesday, and here's why. I'll tell you why, because today's Chicago Sun-Times has an article uh, featuring Alderman Raymond Lopez. Got to bring him back, D. Got to bring Ray Lowe back. It's been too long. Alderman Raymond Lopez, uh, he's now running for mayor, so he's mayoral candidate, uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez. Do you have to call him Alderman even if he's a mayoral candidate? Hmm. 
let's uh i'll have my uh, crack squad of editors check that out could you check that out just look it up uh anyway uh alderman uh ray lopez has proposed to cut uh, the city council in half Jim Coogan has joined us, ladies and gentlemen. Jim Coogan has joined us. We're going to bring him on really soon to talk Trump and Alex Jones and everything else. But before I do, let me get this off my mind. Uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez wants to curb mayoral power, cut the city council by half, shaking things up. So the guy was elected alderman. I remember when he was a baby alderman. I think he was elected in 2015, I want to say. Uh, and now he's uh, heading it toward the end of his second term, and he's announced that he will not run for a third and said he's going to run for mayor. So <clears throat> what's he going to do? Get rid of his old job. I wonder if he's going to propose this, by the way, if he decides not to run for mayor and stay in the council. You know, he hasn't, It's not like set in stone that he has to leave the Chicago City Council and run for mayor, so he could go back. I wonder if he'll still endorse the idea of uh, cutting the city council in half. So right now, follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen, there are 50 aldermen, 50 wards in the city of Chicago. There have been 50 wards for as long as I can remember. I think it goes back to like the early part of the last century, which would be the 20th century, if I have it right. Uh, And from time to time, someone comes forth with a proposal uh, that just sort of taps into the public's general disenchantment if you will, with aldermen and city council and corruption in Chicago politics. It's like, just throw them out. So you can't literally throw the bums out every year because there's just going to be a new collection of quote-unquote bums that get elected, okay? So even if you throw the old bum out, you still have a new bum. So this idea is, well, just cut it in half. We only have to deal with 25 bums. Uh, and uh, Raylo says, somehow or other, he's convinced himself, I can't, I'm going to bring him on because I, I need to hear his, uh, his thinking on this one, that there will be more diligence uh, and more of a check on the mayor if you have fewer aldermen. Now, I never thought, I, 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 Raylo, you know, I love you, but I'm not seeing the logic there. It's hard enough finding like six independent-minded aldermen out of 50. If you cut it to 25, I, just, I mean, oh, maybe three. You know what I'm saying? It's a proportional thing. Most aldermen just go along to get along. Now, I know uh, in this day and age, Lori Lightfoot, there's been more, uh, what, anti-mayoral votes, but she's gotten everything she's wanted pretty much. So I've never thought that, what, um, independent thought was a trait that I would associate with anybody who runs for alderman. You know, the generally powers that be in the city of Chicago, whether you're a board appointee or an elected official, is groupthink. That's Chicago. That's the Chicago, you know, mentality. You go along. It's a few malingerers, malcontents, uh, maladjusted people on the outers, like me, who dare to say, well, what about the other way? You know, what about another path? So the notion somehow or other that you're going to get more independence and more oversight by reducing the possible number of aldermen who could provide such oversight and such independent thought is kind of counterintuitive, in my humble opinion. Uh, And also then there's the other issue, like, do we want less representation? I mean, if you cut the uh, uh, number of aldermen in half from 50 to 25, you will then have to double the size of wards. So you'll have even less service. <laughs> I'm right now. Uh, my wife is complaining uh, to the local alderman about the situation in our alley. Not to burden you and bore you with the details of our uh, humble existence, but there's a business that whose drivers are blocking access to the alley, 
and we're not having the greatest response from the alder. The guy's got other things on his mind than worrying about our alley. I understand that. But just imagine the lack of response if the ward was twice his size. Well, I guess if you cut in half zero from response, it's still zero in regards to response. So <laughs> anyway, it's very popular, I understand, with the people in Chicago. Instinctive reaction, yes, cut them in half, shake them up. I hate the alderman. But most most voters like their alderman. That's why the alderman get reelected a lot. So it's what that thing about the post office, you've heard that line? Everybody hates the post office, but they love their mailman. Similar thing with aldermen. So, Raylo, I'm going to bring you on to discuss this. Can you get more of something by reducing the body that you're hoping to get more up from? It's like a scientific theorem, theory, hypothesis. Going very scientific with you. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on Ace Attorney, Jim Coogan. Uh, it's been too long since Jim's been on the show, and we have a lot to catch up with, with one Donald John Trump and his crimes. Uh, and a side hustle uh, for Jim Coogan and myself is our interest in Alex Jones uh, and his crimes. So we got to, <laughs> Jim, we got to catch up on Alex Jones. What an operator that dude is. Um, I guess I, I could just laugh it off if it wasn't, I didn't feel so bad for the families at Sandy Hook. Anyway, without further ado, Jim Coogan, welcome back to the show. Hey, Ben. It's good to see you. I'm glad Dennis is here for an Alex Jones show. Uh, I think that I think that's apropos since yes. he does the, does the best impression I've heard of him. But um, well, glad to be you. here. Well, let's just get it out of the way. Dennis, can we just hear an Alex Jones uh, impression from you? I know you're not a jukebox in general. Jim Coogan, Jim Coogan, do you have the documents? <laughs> Let me know if you have them. I am pissed. I'm going to eat my neighbor's ass. Yeah, that's the one. Before we go, Dennis, one more time. Why did he say he was going to eat his neighbor's ass? I can't remember. Beats like, me. It's, it's good for ratings. That's why. He's good. I think it had something to do with China. Uh, but I can't remember anyway. Joe Rogan cites it, by the way, as uh, one of the reasons why he thinks uh, Alex Jones is the funniest man in America. That's uh, one of the, the bits about eating his neighbor's ass. All right, Damn you, China. To, uh, before we get to uh, uh, Alex Jones, let's talk Donald John Trump. So uh, what an eventful month. This guy's been out of office now. I can't recall any president who's caused more uh, headlines uh, and draw more attention to himself uh, out of office and than Donald John Trump. I have to give him credit for that, Jim. And I've lived through a lot of ex-presidents. Uh, most of them just go out and make a lot of money. Uh, Trump is still making money. Uh, he's just doing it in an interesting uh, uh, crowd fundraising way uh but obviously the big news regarding trump about two weeks ago i think it was it was a monday the feds uh raided his what do you call it palatial uh florida apartment presidential club presidential yeah i don't it's like i see the picture i go can one man live there i, mean, um, I think they have rooms for others to live in that's why i call it a residential club a residential club, but not quite like like the, the old residential clubs at, let's say, the Lawson YMCA on Chicago Avenue. A little different uh, residential club, a little more uh, upscale. Anyway, they raided and they carted out a bunch of boxes. Uh, and um, ever since, there's been ongoing uh, political fight and an ongoing uh, legal fight. And we'll talk about both. Uh, but let's start with, why don't you just do a little summary, uh, Jim, of 
what uh, the feds were looking for, what and what uh, they got. So go ahead. Yeah, this is uh, this has been a very interesting month, and it's in a lot of ways I would say surreal. Which I think, you know, just on that point, I want to take you back in time. I want to sort of draw the listeners in and just take you back to an, a more a more innocent time. It was it was 2015 and 2016, and a young Donald John Trump wasn't the president of the United States yet. It hadn't that that dream had not yet been realized. But one of the items that was in the news back then was an ongoing uh, inquiry into whether or not former first lady and former uh, secretary of state Hillary Rodham Clinton had mishandled information using a private email server uh, because if information was passing to and from her email and it was kept on a, pri- on a server that was not a government server, that somehow this was a mishandling of classified information such that she might have been in violation of the law. A uh, young whippersnapper presidential hopeful Donald Trump and his crack team of campaign specialists seized upon this issue and uh, really drove home just how important they felt that the, the proper handling of classified and sensitive information was and um, miraculously rode the scandal and the continued specter of Hillary Clinton somehow violating the law or potentially putting national security at risk all the way to the white house with, uh, with a helpful little assist from former FBI director, Jim Comey, uh, who very uh, against all department of justice policy uh, and really against all logic or reason reignited the whole story about three weeks before the election in in, uh, November of 2016. So middle of October, making an announcement that they found a computer that belonged to her former aide, Huma Abedin. And it turns out that nothing that was on that computer was any different than what the DOJ had already investigated and conclusively decided that there was no mishandling to a criminal level or that required any further inquiry. So as you can imagine, once Donald Trump left the White House, he was not only careful in following all of the requirements and laws when it came to sensitive documents, particularly those with top secret clearance attached to them, but scrupulously instructed all of his aides and all of his followers and all of his lawyers to carefully handle those things, make sure that they complied with all national archives, record uh, system rules, regulations, and carefully catalog and protect all those, all those pieces of sensitive information that they had access to the to when he was in the White House. Of course, nothing on the back end of that story makes any sense because, of course, um, this is just another example of the. I don't think hypocrisy is the right word anymore. I, I think it's really just an abuse of of everybody's time at this point. It's just a, he's just abusing the United States of America here. Um, we had a situation where maybe whatever Hillary had done was problematic, but as we recall, that turned into chance of, of cheering crowds yelling to have her locked up before there was even a trial. And obviously nobody even brought charges. So it, it was in, incarceration before investigation when it came to Ms. Clinton. And of course, now that Donald Trump uh, left office uh, just to give, to actually answer your question instead of being a little bit uh, facetious there, he actually had a year and a half of continued dialogue and conversation between the national archives 
the Department of Justice and his people, his lawyers and his contacts, uh, asking pretty please, can you just give us back things that you're not supposed to have, sir? There are lots of uninteresting um, pieces of information in every White House. And as a lot of people probably don't realize, because we don't all work in the White House, they actually keep virtually everything, notes, memoranda, emails, everything that's passed back and forth between staff and between the president, they keep it all. So I'm sure this is not just an 80-20 rule, probably 95-5 rule, where the vast majority, 95% of it is uninteresting. You know, it's little scribbles, notes. We all know that the president was infamous for not using computers, so anything he read had to be printed out for him, and he would often scribble in giant, preposterous Sharpie with notes and so on. Um, But the problem is, if intermingled with his personal love letters to Kim (laughs) Jong-un was various top-secret documents, that's where not only the National Archive, but also the FBI and the DOJ are interested in what he's got. And so just just to come back to a firm timeline, as of May 2021, they started asking him, hey, where is this stuff? We have a pretty good idea that you took things that you weren't supposed to. Continued back and forth all the way through January of 2022 when uh, 15 boxes of documents were taken from Mar-a-Lago, of which I think 184 of those were determined to have been classified and therefore should never have been in his possession. But even after that, he had attorneys actually swear in an affidavit that he had complied with all the requests and turned everything over, but that, of course, wasn't true. And the matter was referred to the FBI, who then continued to look at it throughout 2022 to the point where they had to swear out an affidavit and get a search warrant, which included not just looking for these documents, but also for surveillance video, because obviously they're putting together a larger case about when and where these things were stored, how they were stored, who had access to them, and I have no doubt into whether or not Trump and his people were telling the truth about where they were kept and who had access to them. That mostly brings us up to speed, Ben. Yeah, that's really well done. Uh, and I love uh, the uh, snarkiness and, sar- and snarkiness and sarcasm. Uh, it was almost like you were talking to a jury. Would that be opening or closing? That would be opening argument, like right? Wouldn't that be a good opening argument that you just gave? It was borderline. I was getting a little, little feisty. Might be a little more like argument, but yes, you know, you want to give, you want to give the jury a preview of what the whole show is going to be about, and that's kind of what we did. Yeah. Could the uh, the Trump's lawyers uh, object in the middle of anything you said? I don't think you, they could have. So um, I think well, it worked for me anyway. Can and uh, should are two different things. <laughs> trial strategy and trial advocacy are really um, they're forms of art. And uh, everybody handles it their own way. There's always the theory that if you're objecting, then the jury thinks you've got something to hide. On the other hand, you can't let the other side get away with murder in open court. So. All right. So um, there was, I found it fascinating. I don't know if anybody else will, uh, article in today's New York Times that's uh, summarizing what Trump is and his lawyers are attempting to do right now, which is stall and delay uh, the inquiry into uh uh, document stealing gate or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, so before we get into that, uh, with all the issues of calling in a, a special master, which is a whole new term that I <laughs> special master sounds so weird. But anyway, before we get to that, uh, why don't you take a moment to um, conjecture a bit? Uh, and this is something we're heading into Monroe Anderson country here. But uh, why don't you uh, venture there? Um, I'm I'm struggling to know why. I mean, just why would Donald Trump 
hold on to these documents? What value do they have to Donald Trump? Why does he care? Uh, some of the stuff that uh, right, reading, you know, like you, I read all the articles, you know, like newspaper clippings and the like, which is like they were doing a favor. Get, <laughs> they were doing him a favor by getting rid of it from uh, <laughs> storage bin. He had it in. So, you know, just think about uh, Why don't you uh, offer your theories as to what Trump was up to uh, when he collected this and took it out of the White House to begin with? Okay, he had to take it out of the White House, then store it in Mar-a-Lago, and then just refuse uh, to turn it over when the National Archives people requested him. What do you think he was up to? Well, what's that group called? The Junk Squad or whatever? They'll declutter your house for you and take it all away? Is that what you're talking about? That's yes, the- exactly. So, yeah, I mean, look, if you recall, there were some disturbing news coverage pieces from January of 2021 and I'm not talking about January 6th right now. I'm talking about the, the sort of free-for-all. Uh, everybody was just sort of taking everything that wasn't nailed down inside of the White House. Um, we've got one of those Trump advisors, Peter Navarro, I think was particularly noted in articles and in photographs, grabbing things, taking art pieces and other artifacts out of the White House. Uh, and a lot of other Trump people were noted to have just kind of grabbed whatever they thought they could. Um and it certainly was chaotic, if for no other reason. Everything about Trump world is chaotic, but they also had this ongoing attempt to, uh, you know, undermine and, and have a coup of the government. So I guess they didn't really think they were leaving or they didn't organize their process in leaving. But some of that, I think, has been used as a very lame excuse for what's been going on here. Uh, it, it's it, if, if you want to just imagine what I think would be the most innocent explanation for this, it would be that he is a pack rat, that he is a memorabilist when it comes to himself. He doesn't, I don't, doesn't seem like his memorabilia has anything to do with anyone else, but he buys pictures of himself and portraits and uses his charity to do it. Uh, he hangs fake images of the uh, time man of the year of himself. I mean, so anything that's got his name on it, articles, news clippings, things like that, I'd imagine he would want just as a hoarding sort of selfish thing. And then maybe there's a general, this is all my stuff. This is my White House. This is my presidency. This is my country. I can take whatever I want. Yeah. So there's a possessive arrogance to all of it that I'm sure is part of it. But then the question becomes why, once it's brought to his attention, would he refuse to turn to return things that are marked as Top secret, secret, SCIF, SCIF, which means it's only to be viewed in a special compartmentalized room, or special access program stuff, which might, I think in this situation, could involve uh, information about the location and the technological capacities of our nuclear system. Why? Again, if you want to find the most innocent explanation, I think it's just arrogant selfishness, just holding on to these things, like I'm, I'm entitled to hold on to them, it's fine. But the more nefarious explanation is that he had some other purpose for them, either to use as leverage with somebody here or abroad or to use as something of value domestically or abroad. Because otherwise, what's the point? He's not, I mean, even in, if, if in his own deranged mind, he actually still thinks he's the president. He, he still, some part of his brain knows he's literally not, the pre- well, I don't even know. Maybe he does. Maybe that has something to do with it. But there's certainly no generals coming and asking him for a, you know, orders anymore. 
Mm-hmm. So, and it's not as if he literally has someone bringing around the so-called nuclear football with him anymore. So there's, there's indicia that he's no longer actually the president. What other purpose could he possibly have for those kind of things? Based on, again, we're doing off, off of reporting, but the reporting was he never read his presidential daily briefs. They stopped putting words in there and tried to use more pictures just to keep his attention. And he wouldn't strike me as a details guy, someone who's going to actually look through some of these more, I mean, look, something can be marked special access program, be highly sensitive and dangerous, but also be extraordinarily boring because it's probably very technical. What, per, what good would that have to him personally? It's not as if he's going to read through that and he just has a curious mind. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm not afraid to say I've laughed at the notion that one of his advisors was claiming that this was a product of him just being a workaholic and taking home his work every night, which I don't understand why the, those documents went to the residence at the white house. And then suddenly magically showed up at Mar-a-Lago taking your work home does not mean also shipping it after you leave the job that you're no longer in anymore. But you know, I feel like there has to be something more here because I just don't really see, and we'll get to this, I guess right now, why the FBI would raise this level of alarm if it wasn't something serious and if they didn't also have some belief that whatever it is that he's holding on to could be used for something that endangers national security. Well, all right. Uh, we'll get to that now because uh, that's a tricky, that's always, that's always a very tricky uh, matter. They redacted all the stuff in the affidavit. Uh, well, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm going to trot this theory before I get to the affidavit and whether there were sensitive documents there and why the FBI did what it did, uh, exposing itself to a political uh, blowback, ferocious political blowback, I might add. Nothing like I've ever seen him in my lifetime, and I lived through the uh, 60s when it would be the radical left uh, denouncing the FBI. I have this theory about Donald Trump, and uh, I've followed powerful people for a long time, it's been my career, basically. Generally, it's local politicians, mayors of Chicago and the like, who have tremendous local power, concentrated locally. Uh, and a feeling that above the law is one way of saying it, but you never concede. And one thing that struck me about Donald Trump and Alex Jones, we're tying our two together, um, they never concede. They may have to concede momentarily, like at, at like in a moment in court, let's say, but then within an leaving an hour after leaving court, they back off from whatever they conceded and they, they just never concede. It's a way of going through life. Donald Trump, it's been very um, rewarding approach to take for Donald Trump. He like, he gets people, he hires people to build his buildings and he doesn't pay them when they demand payment. He sues them. He never concedes and then end up settling for less than what uh, they thought they were going to get, what he had originally agreed to pay them. It's just a way of going about life and it's worked very well for him. And so my theory, and I'll get your reaction to this, is he had this uh, information. They sought it. Uh, and his attitude was, if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. Somehow or other, you're going to have to give me something in exchange for what you want from me. It's just like a transactional mindset. Mm-hmm. It's the transactional mindset of somebody that immediately, as soon as anybody asks them anything, they go, well, what are you going to give me? for do-? Anyway, that's my reigning theory. 
as opposed to Monroe is very specific. Oh, he's going to uh, use it to blackmail. That's that's his theory that there's sensitive documents there. So if they try to prosecute him, he's going to use it. Oh, you're going to you're going to prosecute me. I'll reveal this to Putin. So what's your uh, take on my theory? Well, that would be an interesting way to exercise leverage by explicitly committing treason. But I don't I don't <laughs> I don't think I would uh, put it past them at this point because. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great observation. You're right, 100% in the sense that uh, refusal, obstruction, dragging things out, utilizing the legal process in whatever way that you can to string things along and then hopefully either drown or starve your opponent. Uh, that is a method by which he has operated since he learned it from Roy Cohn 40 years ago. So that's, that is Trump 101, and Trump 102 is leverage if he thinks he's got leverage over somebody he, he's constantly seeking leverage over people and when he has it he exacts everything he can mercilessly i mean we forget so many weird threads to all this but he was close personal friends with david pecker wasn't that the guy who ran the national Enquirer, who would would squash stories about trump and print stories about trump's enemies and use them to blackmail or what, whatever they want to call it, extort people in that circumstance. So that is a very essential piece of his character. So whether or not it was because he was already intending to sell secrets to the Saudis or to the Russians or something like that, or he was just saying, now oh, screw you. I'm not going to make this easy for you. Uh, I mean, that's certainly it, it's, I think the, the, the beauty of your theory, Ben, is that it's something that's less, super villain nefarious and and it, it, it takes a lot less to believe that that could really be happening it's more mundane and so therefore it, it really might be exactly what's going on it's as simple as hey I, you know if i have something and you want it now you want something i'm not going to give it to you for free he is definitely the kind of person who doesn't give anything away for free hmm. i can just imagine being the lawyer on the other side of a civil matter dealing with this <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's why my recommendation to any lawyer who uh, gets a call from Donald Trump, get the money up front. Oh, yeah. And 100%. <laughs> right? Get all of it. Not partial payment. Uh-uh. Get the money up front. No. You know, it's funny. I, I, I know I've mentioned this before. It's been a while, though. Uh, I know criminal defense lawyers, many of them, and, and they generally tell me that's their that's their deal. Guy comes to them. I didn't do it. I swear. Okay, fine. I want the money. I want it now. And then we, then we proceed all of it. It'd be like, you know, they could be charged like 15 grand. The guy's got to put his house up for mortgage. I don't care. Just get that money to me. Cause the theory is that once you got him, even you quit him, you're never going to see that money or you know, especially if he goes to jail. Uh, yep. All right. Well, that's well, see, yeah, though, that's that's I don't know if they teach that to you in law school. See, all the you real know, useful stuff. No, no. So here I had a trial advocacy teacher who was a criminal defense lawyer. So these are practitioners that come in and actually teach you these things. He taught us that lesson before. I, and I did never really had an interest in going into criminal law, but I still remember him saying it. What, whatever you do, rule number one is when you meet with that client the first time, tell him he brings the money with him and he pays you right away. Otherwise, that's it. Uh, so I, I. I fully believe that you heard that from other practitioners. Uh, yeah, I heard it. Uh, I will not tell you the name of the guy. And I just caught, cause he's a public official now. Uh, he probably doesn't want to know that he uh, gave me that advice many years ago. All right. Um, now let's get to the FBI. Boy, they raised the stakes. 
they went to a judge. Uh, they had to file an affidavit, which uh, was a, a legal document justifying why they felt uh, they needed a warrant uh, for the rights uh, to search Trump's uh, apartment or whatever that thing, uh, mansion, and then extract from it documents that they thought had to be removed for the public good. Uh, the uh, judge read through the affidavit and then gave them the warrant they needed and off they went. Uh, and it's been political theater ever since with the right denouncing it as an unwarranted, even though there was a warrant, uh, intrusion into the uh, rights of a, a private citizen. And just think, ladies and gentlemen, if they do that to a former president, <laughs> they could do that to you, which is like, duh, it's called a warrant. <laughs> Millions of people deal with them every day. Duh. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, Jimmy, you got to believe that the FBI knew what it was doing uh, before they ignited this firestorm so that there must be some compelling information. On the other hand, they redact for uh, national security reasons any clues as to what that compelling information is. Very frustrating for a transparency geek like me who wants to know obsessively wants to know what's going on when the FBI won't tell me what's going on. They won't fully explain why they did what they did. Citing national security, uh, explain all that to uh, our listeners if you can. Well, for an old lefty like yourself, did you ever think you'd see the day that a right wing uh, fascist wannabe president would be the reason <laughs> that pro-police hardcore right-wingers would suddenly be screaming defund the FBI. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to make light of some of the horrible things that you witnessed in the 60s and 70s that happened right here in Chicago um, at the hands of law enforcement. But honestly, could you ever imagine that this is where you'd find yourself in 2022? None. Uh, it's a point. It's a great point, and I make it all the time. Uh, none of these, none of these people. Many of them were, are my age, uh, so they, they were literally there when the FBI did things like kill Fred Hampton while right. first drug him so he was asleep, then kill him while he was asleep, then right. try to conceal all the evidence of having. None of them were anywhere near uh, the front lines of that fight, and the younger people, of course, they're they're descendants, so they were never near it. Like, oh. Uh, any of the local uh, Laquan McDonald, let's say the fight to release information about Laquan McDonald. So yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, they're worthless when it comes to real invasions in my humble opinion of uh, civil liberties in this country. Absolutely worthless. Yeah, yeah. I think you and I can both agree that all this hooting and hollering is, is really a product of one thing. They're just, they're so hyper loyal to Trump that they have to, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it's their, their back to blue, uh, Blue Lives Matter, they'll throw anything under the bus when it's convenient for him, which is weird. I, I know we've been over it a lot, sort of the angst over the fact that there's just no principles involved here. I mean, these are our neighbors and and some of them are friends. It's dismaying that this is how their brains work, but here we are. So as far as the FBI goes, um, I completely appreciate where you're coming from as far as your obsession with not just transparency from a government standpoint, but also being a news and political junkie. But I think that the important thing to keep in mind as far as what was not included in the redacted and released version of that affidavit is that information was submitted to this judge. The judge who, I mean, look, judges make rash decisions, but 
any judge that was going to sign off on a search warrant for the, the residence of a former president, I, I tend to believe that they would have been very careful here. Mm-hmm. Not because they were, not because it's like a, a political thing, just because they, they know that nothing will be more scrutinized perhaps in the rest of their legal career than their decision to do this and to sign off on it. So what they've kept out in terms of individuals and sources, not just for national security purposes, but let's, let's back up a second. In the wacky, unhinged response from Trump world and from the right wing after this uh, lawful search was executed, I do not use the R word that you used in your intro today, Ben. I won't call it a raid because it wasn't. But this lawful search was executed. Um, immediately, they flipped out. It was all kinds of crazy conspiracy th- theories about things being planted or, uh, you know, that they're, they're just doing it without a warrant until obviously there was a warrant. I mean, it's like, it's like they'll scream and yell something until it turns out that it's not true. They don't bother to check whether it is or not. Yeah. But one of the things that they were screaming and yelling for, first, of course, Trump himself and all of his surrogates were demanding, show the warrant, show the warrant, show <laughs> the warrant, partly because I think they're not sure if the DOJ will actually do it. So then if they don't do it, they can scream and yell about a lack of transparency. And then if they do do it, they'll scream and yell about what was omitted from the warrant. And if they show the affidavit, they'll scream and yell about what was omitted for that, because these are all just convenient uh, and and intellectually dishonest arguments. But the deeper and I think more nefarious purpose was if sources are identified and when they are, they're going to be targets. So whoever, whoever the information came from, the names of the people, that gave information who's, who were either, I don't know, actually planted there as, as undercover agents or uh, were sources for the FBI in terms of identifying what things were where and when they should go search for them. Those people are going to be targeted by dangerous folks. I mean, there was one guy who tried to go attack FBI agents in Ohio. I mean, it, think about what it takes. If you're actually going to go, I'm going to go, what, shoot up an FBI office? Those are not just dangerous, but they're crazy dangerous. That's not rational thinking. Obviously, there's no one person's going to take that down. So if people like that feel like they'll be animated by this kind of thing, I, I think there's a lot of judicious reasons why information was withheld in that affidavit for now. Because here's the other side of this. From a, from a civil liberties and a due process standpoint, that information has to come forth in open court if the man's going to be charged with a crime or if other people in his orbit and who uh, mishandled these documents, such as, you know, the guys who were designated to hold on to it, like Solomon and Cash Patel, if they have broken the law, the, the, the government's going to have to present that case in open court. The indictment would be unsealed, and if they go to trial, those witnesses have to actually testify. So there are backstops to the notion that somehow this would be some sort of secret operation. I know that's not what, exactly what you're implying, but, uh, but either way, there's a, there's a process, and that's, you know, a boring reference, there is a due process that works here when it's supposed to play itself out if somebody's liberty is actually at stake, which could be the case. Absolutely. And so at some point, the uh, FBI and the feds uh, presumably will have to uh, show their cards uh, if if they take it to the full uh, court trial. Uh, we'll, it, we'll get to that because we get to the, the, the delays. Uh, but you, you said something... Uh, it triggered a thought in my mind. It wasn't Donald Trump who collected these documents and put them in boxes. Uh, and um, 
It was, I don't know who else, somebody else. Sure. Secret service men, perhaps. Uh, I, I mean, I, I can't think of anybody else who would have been like the physical labor yeah. of having to put documents, pick them up and put them in boxes. I doubt very much it was Donald Trump Jr. or Eric. You don't Trump. you don't imagine that Donald Trump was standing there in his cardigan sweater with his little <laughs> half reading glasses, checking off his list of uh, of ten thousand pages of documents that he was putting into boxes all by no. himself. No, I, I by don't the way, that happened either. Uh, and, and just completely uh, tangential, when you said that, it triggered a thought in my mind. Another thought of Daniel Ellsberg, a, a legitimate whistleblower who carted off hundreds of hundreds of documents having to do with uh, the Pentagon's lying about the reasons why we went to the war in Vietnam. He literally did it himself. It's like there's a whole backstory to him carting the information out, photocopying it, putting it back to cover himself. You know what I mean? So, yes, I do not believe there was a Donald Trump was like Daniel Ellsberg valiantly doing it. I think he just did it. Typical. He ordered someone to collect it. So you're right. Somebody may have dropped the dime. Uh, who did the collecting and his or her uh, identity is being protected. Hadn't thought of that as specifically until you said it. Well, and keep in mind, Ben, all those, the people who had access to any, because obviously you could have any staffer do that, right? <laughs> but not every staffer has the ability to touch certain pieces of paper. So it's a limited universe. And those people who are allowed to be in those rooms and touch those pieces of paper, at least, well, in a normal White House, it's drilled into their brains what their role is, what their responsibility is, what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to yeah. do. So they would theoretically be liable criminally as well. If, you know, they, if somebody said, wait a minute, somebody packed these boxes, you could start going down a checklist, figure out who was there on a certain day. You can really narrow that down quickly if you know what you're doing. And I would suspect the FBI would know what they're doing. And then you're left with, now you've got this guy or this gal. And well, they're, now are they going to roll? And that's where they got some of this information. And to that point, I think there's an underlying assumption in Trump world uh, that as long as Donald Trump is in charge, no one will be held accountable uh, for the crimes they commit. He'll pardon them uh, if he can. He'll put so much pressure uh, on uh, the, the feds that they'll drop their investigation. Or if it's a matter of Congress, he has the Republican vote sewed up to halt to end any investigation. So I think there's, you're right. There's this underlying assumption in Trump world. In fact, they are, they're open about it. They openly say, uh, when we take, save your notes, FBI uh, head Christopher Ray, because if we, when win, not if we take back the house, we're going to be investigating you. We're going to be calling you in to testify, uh, which will be in interesting. Uh, if that, if that is the case, uh, all right, let's now get um, to Donald Trump's request for a special master. Uh, <laughs> this is priceless, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Donald, I, I got to give him credit. I never heard of a special master before. Somehow or other, Donald Trump discovered that term. Someone must have told him about it. I can't imagine. <laughs> he had studied law, knew about it. Had you ever heard of a special master before this, Jim, before this broke in the well, paper? Yeah, they so they'll use special masters in complex discovery situations. If a judge is overseeing something where there's multiple parties or there's some gigantic thing where there's multiple states fighting over water rights or something like that, they'll have special masters ma manage the process of uh, locating, collating, and sorting through documents such so that you can figure out which things are relevant, which aren't. 
uh, judges will appoint them because the judge themselves have a docket of a thousand other cases. They can't spend the kind of time it would take for that case. But in this context, no, this is a, this is a very special, uh, <laughs> use master. of the term. It was yeah. creative, I suppose, uh, to somehow suggest that, I guess the argument is the FBI isn't allowed to just look at things once they seize them. I don't think that that ever happens And the initial response from the judge that they managed to file this in front of, which is different from the judge who signed off on the warrant. Yeah. They filed this as a, I guess like a, it's like a, a lawsuit of sorts. Uh, and initially the judge kind of said, what do you, what am I doing here? What is this? Is this a cause of action? What do you, what are you, are you asking me to force the FBI to do? So my understanding is there's supposed to be a hearing on that this Thursday. Yes. But I thought I saw a headline this morning saying that the FBI is already done looking at the documents. Yes. So I'm not, I mean, it could be that it's it, this dilatory waste of time tactic may have failed because in the meantime, what I'm assuming is, and I didn't see this anywhere, they couldn't also ask for an injunction, which is we've used that phrase on this show before just to remind everybody, if you have something where you're trying to go to court to stop someone from doing something right now, Mm-hmm. There are very, very rare circumstances that it could be used, but it can be used and courts can issue an injunction to either stop something from happening or force something to happen right now. That would have been, you know, that could have been step one to enjoin the FBI from looking at the documents and then decide the merits of whether or not they're going to have a special master. But since I don't think the court would have had that power, it may now be moot. Although, Adorable, but but moot. Well, I got to tell you, I've never heard anything remotely like it. And uh, so I'm going to put it in as much in layman's terms as I can. And then if you could think of an example uh, of of it happening, go ahead and provide it. But this is the deal, folks. The FBI, just file this. happens all the time in Chicago. FBI will raid an alderman's office. And and they do it a lot more. uh, Excuse me. It is a raid. It's not a, a, a search. Although you could argue it's, I call it a raid because they come in, they, uh, they make sure people see pictures of it. They're wearing jackets that say FBI on them. So it's part of the humiliation of a public official, uh, in Chicago. It's the equivalent of a perp walk. Let everybody know. And the papers dutifully obsessively report on it. We talk about it on the show. Ed Burke, I can recall. Kerry Austin, I can recall. Various state reps and state officials. The FBI comes in and they take boxes out and there's images of it. Okay. Uh, just imagine if Ed Burke or Michael Madigan or Kerry Austin immediately petitioned the judge saying the feds cannot look at whatever documents they took uh, until I've had a special master go through to see if there's anything that's private. I, I just can't imagine, first of all, the outrage in Chicago, collective outrage. Republicans, too, by the way, would be leading. the. Darren Bailey would be screaming. <laughs> Kenny Griffith Griff would be, Griffin would be screaming. They'd be leading the charge. You know, Bruce Rodder from his mansion in Florida would be denouncing corrupt Democrats. So it's just, I find it a preposterous notion that, Again, I got to give Trump credit. He demands things that no normal human being would demand. It's like a sense of entitlement. Now, am I wrong? Can you think of an instance where a uh, a person accused or being investigated for breaking the law, a public official, has forced the feds 
to hire an intermediary to review the evidence that they got gathered. I mean, Blago didn't do it. They were listening to the tapes in real time. So can you think of any, Jim? So the, the normal reason why this is not a thing, and I don't, I, I mean, I don't know what this judge was planning on doing Thursday, but I don't think it's a thing. And I don't think that she ultimately either had the power to do anything or whatever she did would not have been what they expected it to be. The normal reason why it's not a thing is this is what your protections are under the Bill of Rights. So this is what the Fourth and Fifth and Sixth Amendments are for. The point being that you don't get to go into the police evidence locker and watch them look at your stuff or watch them read through your documents or your phone or whatever it is that they've seized. But if they do it improperly, it could be excluded from evidence. That's the procedural due process that we have when it comes to criminal uh, prosecutions in this country. That if what they did, if they looked at it and they seized it without a basis, if it wasn't a valid warrant, if they got information from you without advising you of your right to counsel, if they did something improperly, then the evidence that they gather is excluded and they can't be used against you to prove the crime. That's why there's no need for a special master. Like, ta-da, this is the <laughs> this is why nobody's ever heard of it, because it doesn't make any sense. And and more importantly, I guess the only exception that I'm, I get, they might've argued this. I got, I tried, Ben, I tried to read the filing that they made. I, I couldn't make it all the way through uh, <laughs> on the special master thing. It, I mean, the first page had that line, if you saw it, where it says politics should have no place in criminal justice, uh, the administration of criminal justice in this country. And literally the next sentence cites the fact that Trump either may be, or is the front runner for, uh, running for office in 2024, and the sentence after that was talking lauding his influence on uh, picking winners in primary races in 2022. I mean, it, it was. Uh, I'm gonna try. I'm not gonna say anything defamatory on a on a fine podcast as this, but I was embarrassed reading it, and it reads like a press release, and it was raked by legal lawyers, legal scholars, people in the know who understand what these documents normally would consist of. Uh, it's just more whining. I mean, it's more whining and more delay. But no, there are no other comparables to this because normally what they do is they seize your stuff, they figure out whether there's evidence in there, and maybe they give you some of it back at the end. Or if it's things that they have to hold on to, then they just hold on to them. But this is, this is a trend with something about Trump people. I don't know if it's entitlement, like you mentioned, or if it's just a weird aggression that they have towards uh, criminal law enforcement. John Eastman was demanding his phone back before they were even like finished looking at it. Uh, that's the guy who was the architect of yeah. part of the coup. Um, they have this, this sense of, we don't even, we don't even give the, give you your legitimacy as law enforcement. Uh, we're not going to let you go through that. I mean, look, criminal defense lawyers that you have as friends and on this show would love to have the power to say those things, but that ain't how it works. They can go move for the suppression of evidence or they can move to exclude something at trial if it hasn't been uh, suppressed already. And that's it. That's how it works. So these guys are basically asking for special rules and it's, it's nothing more than a delay and and maybe it didn't work. I I, listen, it's you, you, it's, it's a selective entitlement. 
That's exactly what it is. And right now, I, I don't want to mix up our metaphors and mix up shows because I'm doing this whole show on this tomorrow. But right now, suddenly there's erupted in the city of Chicago concern over drag racing in the streets on the weekends. I don't know if you follow this in the paper. I've been following it. Uh, sometimes has been obsessively following it. I'll have the Sun-Times reporter on tomorrow. But the point is, they are immediately talking about impounding automobiles. So I'm like, okay. so what, you're going to pound an automobile based on a photograph of that automobile at, was it participating in the uh, drag race? Was it just there uh, watching the drag race? Was it in the, the caravan that went to the drag race? I'm just saying that there's this demand on the part of the public that something being done. There's uh a reciprocal response by the city to say we're going to impound and i don't hear anyone and from trump world talking about the rights of a defendant the rights of a person who's being investigated special masters to investigate whether that car is in fact the one that was in the <laughs> so it is it's very unusual requests and it's particularly unusual coming from this crowd um that will deny anybody else uh, their, like, presumption of innocence. Uh, and it's it's kind of nauseating, actually, uh, Jim. As I tell you, start, you mentioned this already. I'm always looking for a principle at stake in any argument uh, that would justify the person's position. It's very hard to find an underlying principle in anything MAGA does. Uh, they're all tactics. All right, so um, I think that pretty much covers uh, Donald Trump. Yes, uh, the update on Donald Trump, very thorough job, Jim. And uh, yeah, the judge will be ruling, I think on Thursday as to whether a special master will be ordered to review documents uh, that the FBI has already read. So the special master will be assigned the task. Follow me on this folks uh, of reviewing documents to, to see if there's any documents that the FBI should not read because they're private possessions of Donald Trump. Uh, despite the fact that the FBI has already read them. Okay, so that's the logic in Trump world these days. That's where we are. Uh, and, and by the way, Donnie, you could have avoided all of this by just, well, first of all, not taking the documents out in the first place uh, and returning them uh, when asked. All right, well, let's... Don't forget one other thing about this. There is a... there's This happened throughout the four years that he was in office. Yeah. It would often take things that are either preposterous arguments on their face or just bad faith, you know, public arguments and filter them through lawyers, either by forcing the Justice Department to do something or have some other lawyer file something. And just like in this case, the special master thing, it's in a legal filing. And so therefore it is treated differently by the press when they report on it. You and I have talked about this phenomenon. He's not stopping that just because he left the office, you know, still filtering things through lawyers, even if they are not, the best lawyers in the world. And even if what a lawyer looks at it and says, this is ridiculous, but there's still this knee jerk reaction by the press when they cover this guy to treat legal filings as if somehow there's some, there's an additional patina of legitimacy to it, or it's more authentic or it, well, a lawyer wouldn't have filed it if it wasn't true because there's sanctions involved or something like that. But you know, not, a, not unless somebody works for those sanctions and that the judges are reluctant to fight, it won't make any difference, yeah. but 
Uh, but I'll I'll let you move on to the next. I, I will move on to Alex Jones, and I'll close by just saying, "Well, I really hope a lawyer for Trump who is uh, seeking the special master, you got your money up front." All right, uh, Alex Jones. Wow, <laughs> I mean, it, we're we don't have enough time to do uh, this justice. Uh, but Alex Jones, of course, uh, just faced, uh, what was it? The, the verdict ultimately came in. He had paid fi- a, a total of roughly 45 million. I want to say I'm doing this off the top of my head, uh, in punitive and, uh, uh penalties for just making up, uh, stuff about uh, Sandy Hook saying it didn't happen when of course it did happen when children were killed uh, in a mass shooting and the parents sued him in the Texas court. Uh, and now he's claiming bankruptcy, uh, and uh, it's it, and then at the same time there there's uh, they're accusing him of setting up a, a dummy company that he could a shell that he could shift uh, his money to so from his known company so that he can claim well I can't give it to you because I'm bankrupt even though the money is in a different account under a different name uh, and it. it you know, I, painfully ironic, uh, Jim, as it comes on the heels of the debate over student debt, where the MAGA right now is claiming that we're just reinforcing <clears throat> sloth, laziness, and bad decisions that uh, students have made uh, in pursuing a career in college and then running up a big debt. Uh, and then why should hard working taxpayers be obligated to pay that? Uh, and it's, this is more just, I mean, it's beyond hypocrisy. Uh, so explain to our listeners as best you can, uh, what Alex Jones is up to here. Well, what's, what's that old saying? Moral hazards for thee, not for me. Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> just, just riffing off of the notion of certain debt forgiveness is, 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 uh, morally reprehensible, but not when it's, convenient for you um yeah look tell me if you can hear this i'm going to play this real quick if you can hear this this is alex jones on a clip from his show that's why they do this so the hope of some giant judgment on the already guilty alex jones that they hope is too big for us to even get a bond on well once you're in bankruptcy it's all there in the court and the bonds for the appeals are half your net worth well that isn't going to be very, very much, maybe a million, million and a half dollars or something, and they're going to try to claim all this other wealth, but it, it's not true. So then we will be able to continue on with appeals and the rest of it for years, and we will be able to to, to fight. Now, did, did that come through? You hear that on your end? Yes. Okay. Through. So the reason I play this is there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, this is completely consistent with the theme of today's show, which is abuse of the legal system. Um, there's a quote, and I think it was actually from his own testimony because he was on the stand in the Texas case where he finally conceded that what happened in Sandy Hook was 100% real. Okay, so this is him talking. This is his own admission that it's real. Then you have the guy on his show just now saying that he will appeal this till the end of time, which would put the same families who suffered the abuse from his lunatic followers and his watchers who harassed them, followed them around with cameras, accused them of being crisis actors and being fake, and accused them of faking and lying that their children were murdered. As horrible as that is, it will, and you know, now they finally got a little bit of a sense of justice. They went through, they sued him for defamation. He 
bungled around and refused to participate in discovery. And so they had a finding $4 million in compensatory damages and 45 million in punitive damages, like you were saying a minute ago, but they will use the legal system to further traumatize those people for as long as they possibly can. So even if he's admitting that what he did was wrong in some vague way and admitting that it actually happened and all the profit that he's made over the years of lying about that this was some sort of a hoax and it was designed to try to, to fuel calls for guns to be taken away in this country. Um, just going to keep going with it. Does not matter. Doesn't matter to him one whit. Now I should also mention he's got another case going on in Connecticut. He's been defaulted there and they are supposed to start a trial on damages in September there. And he did declare bankruptcy again, just more using the legal system. You know, one man's use is another man's abuse. But in this circumstance where I think his company is absolutely worth more than $45 million. Um, I, I think that, especially as you alluded to uh, there, I, I might believe, and this is not based on close study, but the bankruptcy proceedings are probably very complex because there's a lot of shell corporations with money being moved around and hidden in a way. So as to, as always hide the assets and showcase the liabilities and possibly avoid paying more of this or pay as much or as you, you just heard him, he just admitted it was partially a tactic to reduce his appeals bond. What's a bond. It means when you have that size of a judgment against you, you don't get to have an appeal unless you put some money up or you put it, put it up and say here court, here's some money. And it's some percentage. I don't know what Texas's rules are. The other issue with Texas, of course, is that the punitive damages ruling will be reduced almost certainly because of the rules in Texas. But you know, kudos to them. The plaintiff's lawyers in that case want to take it to the Supreme Court of Texas and see if they can, you know, expand the law. If there's metrics, a lot of times Supreme Courts are obsessed with, well, what's the comparative uh, multiplication between uh, compensatory damages and punitive damages? If they have a metric in Texas, maybe they can have that increased. You know, if in the past it had been no more than five times or no more than two times or no more than a couple million dollars, maybe they can rewrite the law. They'll make the best argument they can. I mean, for the purposes of future punitive damages awards in that state, I don't think you could come up with a better case for why <laughs> as much of the, of, as much of the penalty and punishing aspect of punitive damages applies to this man and his company. And God help me, the name of it's called free speech systems. Um, I mean, and this, this is a, this is a situation where they are absolutely warranted. So um, there's more to come. You know, I guess we, we don't have a lot of time to go over this one for today, so I'm running through it a little bit. But it's going to happen again in Connecticut because that case, as I, I jumped over to the bankruptcy part of it, because while that bankruptcy was proceeding, there was the potential that that case could have been on hold because of the protections that bankruptcy co court has for you. But apparently the people involved, the trustee and whoever else is, is overseeing it, have agreed to allow the trial to proceed for now. And so they're going to... Uh, with some of the other plaintiffs who are people, uh, relatives of folks who died, who are saying the same thing that the people did in Texas, which is you defamed us. You defamed the, the, the memories of our children and of our, our loved ones. And this whole charade has just been for your profit. Yeah. And, uh, now you're a, a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, so have you ever encountered uh, anything like this when you went to, uh, on behalf of your, um, client and yourself, uh, 
uh, attempted uh, defendant to pay up after a verdict against them. Have you ever uh, encountered such obstacles? Fortunately, not. Um, verdicts have been paid and settlements. You know, there, there's an agreement there. Um, it's part of the deal. You've you've made a settlement. You've reached an amount, and so the next, you know, it's it may be a couple months. Sometimes there's reasons for other delay, but. Uh, nothing to this degree. And, uh, you know, even, even if we had had situations where there was legitimate grounds for appeal, I've never seen, fortunately in my career, a situation like what they dealt with here. I mean, again, these, the judge in Connecticut decided that you are now liable. That's a big deal. When a judge says you don't even get to defend yourself anymore. Your abuse of the discovery yeah. process, which is where you're supposed to turn over information, turn over documents, text messages, internal memos at free speech systems or at Infowars where they're discussing what they know, which, by the way, of the pieces that I saw from the Texas case, it's, it's as disgusting as you can imagine. It's so transparently obvious that they knew what they were doing. They're bringing in this knucklehead who's some kind of supposed expert about crisis acting or something. I yeah. saw the cross-examination where they were asking one of Jones's staffers, did you ever vet this guy's credentials? Well, that wasn't really our job. Did you look into his credentials at all? Did you have any clue as to whether his, what he represented to you about his career in law enforcement and all these other things that his accolades, whether they were even true? Essentially, she had to answer no. And of course, you know, then you see clips of what he was saying and you consider he has no basis to say them. And then you realize, of course, it's just, it's a, it's a wink and a nod. They're just yeah. putting on a charade. Alex Jones is doing a teleplay and whoever his expert is, I'm using air quotes for the podcast audience, is just a, is, is just a, a, a jerk just going on there saying whatever he has to say uh, or maybe even crazy. Maybe he thinks he's some kind of an expert and he enjoys the attention. Yeah, um, but no. either way, the net effect is making money selling survival gear and, and you know, virility pills to, to people who find this to be entertaining. Yeah. And I, and I know there will always be an audience uh, for Alex Jones. I know, just as I know, there will always be uh, an audience for Donald Trump. And uh, I base this um, in part on the, the realization that if you hate something so much, anybody who resemble, who just remotely resembles opposition to what you hate is your ally. And that's a convoluted way of saying uh, people who um, despise the notion of gun regulation in this case will view the parents of children uh, who were slaughtered as their enemies. Uh, they will view uh, the slaughter of the children as irrelevant. They don't they won't want to pay attention to it and they want to discount it as much as they can uh, to get to the point that they want to make, which is that guns, there's no need for gun regulation. Uh, and that Jim, that's a, I just think that's a fact I, we all deal with one level or another, uh, regardless of where we stand on a political issue. If there's something that makes us uncertain about our position, we tend to discount uh, what that is. This is taking that discount to unbelievable extremes. Um, and uh, I, there's a part of me that thinks agrees with Joe Rogan that uh, Alex Jones, there's a buffoonery in Alex Jones that makes him kind of funny. Like, so when Dennis does an imitation about eating his neighbor's ass, uh, but when I feel, consider what he did in case of Sandy Hook, I have, 
it's kind of hard to justify Alex Jones, his ongoing presence uh, as a person of what credibility uh, in our country right now. Well, if it's performance art, you know, you think of Andy Kaufman or you think of even Donald Trump. I know I've, I've heard that, that that's another uh, thought that Dennis has. I think there is a lot of performance art that goes with both. I mean, the guy was a television star. That's how he became president. He isn't yeah. a politician or a serious person. He's just a performance artist. Yeah. But there is a line where that performance art is actually doing damage. This Alex Jones is maybe the most stark example that we have yeah. present tense, but anybody else who riled up the base into actually storming the castle into finding people who would actually be the foot soldiers of an actual legitimate conspiracy to overthrow the government. Yeah. That's what really happened. Yeah. So there's a line where this performance art becomes not just dangerous, but either murderous or or tor- torturous, tortuous, tor- you know, defamation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it's not funny after a certain point, even if you you do. You started out the show saying <laughs> you want to laugh because this stuff is so preposterous, uh, but then you realize that there's actual damage being done, and then it's like, all right, well, let's get back to this uh, very sober podcast because we have to discuss the problems of the world that are caused by buffoons <laughs> making money off of the food real people. So yeah. I don't, I don't feel bad about being on the side. That's not okay with that. No, I, I no problem with it at all, but I do want to end the show on a, a lightly, a light a note. So, uh, I will urge everybody if they haven't already, uh, to talk about Trump as a performance artist, to check out the clip of Jamie Foxx doing his Trump imitation. I sent it to Dennis. I don't think I sent it to you because I don't know if I you're in I saw it the other day. I did. I did. It, it's, he's the, I, Jamie Foxx is the, excuse me, excuse me. Yes, yes. It is so good. Uh, excuse me. Excuse yeah. me. <laughs> it's, it's very good. Oh my goodness. Jamie Foxx is a very funny man. And uh, one day maybe I'll get him as a guest on the Ben Drosky show. Please. Uh, all right. Well, Jim Coogan, thank you very much. Uh, you sum things up really well. Great job as always. Uh, and uh, I guess we'll have you back on uh, next month. Be, I'm sure there'll be other uh, escapades that Donald Trump is up to and we'll need uh, uh, an interpretation. So thanks again, Jim. Happy to be here. Thank you, Ben. All right. Very good. That's Jim Coogan, ace attorney, a good friend of the show and a regular uh, guest. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legends. We mentioned a lot today. The young man from Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Jim Coogan and Alex Jones will tell you back home at Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody.